You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Scripture reading this morning. I'm going to read from the first chapter of Numbers, verses 1 to 21, and then we'll also read verses 44 and 45. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name one by one. You and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men in Israel, twenty years old or more, who are able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe... Each the head of his family is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. From Reuben, Elizur, son of Shedur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zurashaddai. From Judah, Nashon, son of Aminadab. From Issachar, Nathanael, son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, son of Amihud, from Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Padazur, from Benjamin, Abaddon, son of Gideoni, from Dan, Ahizer, son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pagiel, son of Akran, from Gad, Eliasaph, son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enan. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been given, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people indicated their ancestry by their clans and families. And the men, twenty years old or more, were listed by name one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. From the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, All the men twenty years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, one by one, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. Then we turn over to verses 44 to 45 after all the tribes have been listed according to their, their numbers, those who were able to serve in the army. Verse 44 These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the twelve leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites twenty years old or more who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. So turn our Bibles to the text this morning. Mark 3, verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, 
James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Beloved congregation, Jesus Christ. Today we're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark. Last time, a couple weeks ago, we looked at verses 7 to 12, and we noted how that passage concluded with a strict command, a great command from the Lord Jesus to the unclean spirits. These spiritual enemies of Jesus were put under His feet. They had to submit to Him, and He came away victorious over them. In fact, the language of the original in verse 12 portrays Jesus as the commander of God's armies. The word for giving strict orders, well, that appeared frequently in the Old Testament with God as the subject and His enemies as the object. It's an expression that comes out of divine warfare. With these words, Mark is portraying the Lord Jesus as the divine King of Israel. And as a king, he also leads the army. He leads the armies of Israel. And this is the picture of Christ that also emerges in our text this morning. We see the divine King of Israel, the divine warrior, choosing his war council. And we'll see three things. First of all, that his choices are sovereign. Second, that they're surprising. And the last of all, that they are subversive. As we go through this passage, there's one thing that I want you to come away with. I want you to be impressed with your Savior. I want you to never be able to read these words in the same way ever again. From now on, every time you you open the Gospel of Mark and you read these verses, your heart should leap and sing at the sight of such an awesome Redeemer. Filled with praise and adoration, your heart prepared for thankful service to Him. So verse 13, the Holy Spirit tells us that Jesus went up on a mountainside. Well, that's the the first time that's happened, at least in the, the gospel according to Mark. From the other gospels, we know that Jesus did this for a specific reason. It was in order to pray. As it became dark, the crowds, they finally dispersed. You remember in the the previous passage, there were huge crowds of people thronging around him. So many, in fact, that he had to have a boat ready just in case they would crush him. Well, as it became dark, the, the crowds disappeared. And he could have some time alone, time to pray. And at some point, if we look in Luke's Gospel, it was in in the morning. At some point, we're told that he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. The emphasis here is on Christ's sovereign choice of a small group of specially selected men. This happened when he first called Simon, Andrew, James, and John. He calls, and the men come. There's no doubt here that Jesus is the divine king 
through whom things that do not exist come into being. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made, says John 1 verse 3. In this passage, it's that special band of core disciples that are called into being. It didn't exist before. God decreed that these men would follow Him in a special way. And through Christ's call, they come. Later on, Christ Himself reminded His disciples of how all this happened, what was behind it. On the last night before His death, Christ said in John 15, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And of course, the immediate reference there is to service as apostles, just like it is in our text. Yet this general principle, it extends to all believers. It also extends to us, doesn't it? The first initiative towards salvation and service always belongs to God and to Christ. He's the sovereign God who sets out after those He wants. Well, they are dead. And those whom He calls will inevitably come. When we were blinded by sin, He opened our eyes. And we were dead in sin, He breathed life into us. As Colossians 1.16 reminds us, all things were created through Him and for Him. And that includes all spiritual life. See, the good news of sovereign grace is laid before us here in our text already. It humbles us. He chose us. We didn't choose Him. And then all of us who believe, we can be so thankful that Christ wanted us, that He called us, that He worked with His Spirit in us so that we would come to Him. It's all His doing, and one lifetime won't be enough to express our thankfulness and praise for this Savior. In fact, it's going to take an eternity Verse 14 tells us their number. There were, there were 12. We also find their position. They were to be apostles. Let me just spend a few minutes on those, those two important details. The number 12, it's not an accident. It was deliberately chosen by Christ because of its association with the 12 patriarchs and the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. As becomes progressively clear, as we, we go through the gospel, the Lord Jesus was reconstituting the people of Israel. This isn't a case of replacing Israel, saying, well, we're done with Israel, now we'll, we'll put something else in its place. But reconstituting Israel. The apostles formed the core of the continuation of the true Israel of God, the true covenant people. They were to be the foundation of the people of God in a new era. But there's more to it than that. Moments ago we read from Numbers 1. Did you notice how the census was recorded there? The focus was on the number of fighting men in the tribes, the number who could serve in the army. 
The tribes of Israel were regarded as military divisions. These twelve divisions were prepared for battle under the ultimate leadership of Yahweh, the divine warrior, the one who said that he would fight for Israel. Well, he would fight for them and through them. And so when we come to Mark 3, and we've just read about Christ and His warfare against the unclean spirits, we can see that here too. He's creating a council of warriors under His leadership. Just like the twelve tribes were to be God's instrument through whom He would work, so also the twelve disciples were going to be Christ's instrument in His warfare. This idea of being His instrument, a tool in His hand, is captured in the fact that they were designated as apostles. What exactly is an apostle? We hear about them all the time, but I wonder how often we really think about what an apostle is. Well, the English word apostle comes from the Greek language. It comes from the Greek word apostolos which in turn is derived from the verb apostello, which means to send out. Literally, an apostle is someone who is sent out. In day-to-day usage, an apostle was someone sent out as an official emissary or ambassador or representative, often of a king. An apostle would speak in an official capacity on behalf of someone. And in designating the twelve as apostles, the Lord Jesus was setting himself apart from the rabbis of his day. Remember, at the beginning of his ministry, he was regarded as being another rabbi. But as time goes on, he starts doing things, he starts saying things that no ordinary rabbi would ever do. And one of those things is having apostles. Rabbis would never dream of gathering twelve men and then sending them out to speak on their behalf, to act on their behalf. And the mention of apostles here should also signal a bit of a a warning to us as readers. These twelve were appointed as apostles. We are not apostles. There are no more apostles today. So when we read these words, we need to keep that little detail in mind. It's an important detail. As with the sovereign choosing of the twelve, which we we noted a moment ago, there are often general principles that we can extend to all believers. But we need to be very careful about making a a one-to-one application. As if anything said directly to the apostles or about the apostles applies directly to us today as believers. So there were 12. And they're designated apostles. Why? Why did he choose them? For what purpose? Mark begins by saying that he chose them to be with him. That's an interesting way of saying things. Christ chose 12 men to be with Him. We might think that's a bit odd given what we heard last time about the crowds. The crowds, all those people, they wanted to be with Him. 
too. But for many of them, as we, we noted last time, it was for the wrong reason. Here the tables are turned. Christ chooses twelve because He wants them to be with Him. And it's for all the right reasons. Being with Jesus meant a number of things. First, and perhaps most obviously, they were going to be His closest disciples. A disciple is literally a learner, a pupil, a student. They were going to be with Him more than anybody else. And they would hear His parables. They would hear His sermons, His prayers, His conversations, His rebukes, His admonitions, everything. I don't know if you've ever compared the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it appears that Christ repeated Himself on several occasions. It's one of the most well-known examples. Take the similarities that exist between the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. There's two different occasions there. But there's a lot of the same content. As a teacher, the Lord Jesus knew that repetition is the mother of learning. And having His disciples with Him all the time meant that they were going to hear Him say the important things over and over. That was going to be important because being with Him also meant that they were going to be the star witnesses to His ministry. They would be the ones qualified to pass on what He had said and what He had done. Being with Him meant that we would receive the four Gospels which testified to His life and ministry on earth. Being with Him meant that they would have their role in forging and hammering out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The twelve were apostles, and, and being with Jesus meant something with respect to their particular office and their calling. As we noted a moment ago, we're not apostles. And yet, we have the promise of Christ to His church in Matthew 28.20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In John 14, the Lord Jesus promised that He would be with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so while we may not be with Jesus, the way the apostles were in the time of our text, we are still with Him in His Word and with His Holy Spirit. Through our faith worked by the Holy Spirit, we have union with Christ. He has chosen us to be with Him. And today, this being with Him, while it's, it's glorious and it's, it's beautiful, it brings joy and it brings peace with God, we have to admit that it is only experienced in a limited way. But the Word of Christ promises us that we will someday be with Him 
in the fullest possible way. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 1 that his desire was to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. This right now, it's not as good as it gets. The promise is for something far grander than we can, we can ever imagine, that we can wrap our heads around. But for now, our being with Him parallels the apostles being with Him in that we are going to share in His sufferings. We don't like to hear that. This is the cost of discipleship. Sharing in His sufferings. Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians 4 about always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus. In Philippians 3.10, he wrote about having fellowship with the sufferings of Christ and being conformed to His death. Someone once said, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. When the twelve were called by Christ, those twelve apostles, I suspect they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. They would be beaten, imprisoned, mocked, martyred. Being with Jesus was a death sentence. At least potentially. For many of them it was. But for us? Hardly seems that way. Or does it? Try being serious and intentional about your faith. Watch what happens most of the time. Not, not all of the time, but for many of us, watch what happens. Not only when people outside the church mock, people who are not believers, they mock you and they make life hard for you, but when also people inside the church, people who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters, they think that Christian faith and Christian life and being serious about being a Christian is something to laugh at, that it's a joke. Sadly, she didn't have to say it, but it happens. When Christ calls someone to be with Him, He bids him come and die. We're at peace with God, but it's a peace that creates a war. Not only within with our, with our old nature, but also often with outside forces as well. When we are with Jesus, we will share in His sufferings. And through His Spirit and Word, He will support us and He'll help us and carry us through those sufferings. And through them, more and more, He will conform our lives to His image. And so being with Him was part of why He chose the twelve. And Mark goes on to say that they were sent out to preach. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Right now, I just want to spring ahead to verse 15 where we have a direct connection to the preceding passage. It says there, and to have authority to drive out demons. 
Did you know that we never find the word exorcise or exorcism in the New Testament? We have exorcists who are mentioned in Acts 19.13. But other than that, there's nothing. Now, when we speak about Christ and His apostles and what they do with the demons, often we ourselves, we refer to it as exorcism. And I've done that also in my, in my sermons. But the Bible itself never uses those words. Instead, it uses the word cast out or drive out. That's an interesting choice of words. As it's the same word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the casting out of the Canaanites out of the land of promise. It's a word that carries with it the connotation of divine warfare. The apostles of Christ were appointed to be His soldiers and later on His generals in the battle against Satan and His minions. They were to have authority and power over these evil forces. They were going to drive them out. They would be victorious. And that brings us to the preaching. He also appointed the twelve so that He might send them out to preach. Preaching is also a form of spiritual warfare. 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes to a young minister, Timothy, a preacher. He encourages him to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, he tells him to fight the good fight. In 2 Corinthians 10, he writes about the divine warfare. And there he indicates that the weapon in this warfare is the Word, and especially the preaching of the Word. Here in Mark 3, this preaching, which is the weapon of divine warfare, is described as proclamation. It's not a dialogue. It's not a drama or anything else. It is authoritative, verbal, it means it's done with words, proclamation. And of what, you ask? Well, here it can be nothing less than the good news of God, which Jesus Himself has been proclaiming. A Savior has come who will redeem His people from sin. Believe in Him and you will be saved from the wrath of a holy and righteous God. Same message that the church has to proclaim today. And this task of preaching leads us to consider the fact that the, his choice of these twelve was a surprising one. Today, our ministers are well-trained. Four years at university, four years at seminary. But with these twelve men, we find something completely different. If Jewish rabbis were looking for students, for protégés, they wouldn't have looked at these men. They wouldn't have picked them. list starts off with Simon, also known as Peter. Peter means rock. But as you look at the, the early history of, of Peter's life as it's described in the Gospels, 
Rock is not the word that comes to mind. He was a fisherman by trade. He was impetuous. He was optimistic. More than anything else, Peter was a stick of dynamite waiting to explode. Yet Christ gave him that name, Rock, Peter, and made him a sort of cornerstone among the apostles. Like Peter, James and John were fishermen too. They they also had a, a nickname that they shared between the two of them, Boanerges, which is an Aramaic term, means sons of thunder. Probably not a compliment. It seems to be a reference to their, their temperament. And when later on they asked Jesus whether fire should be called down from heaven on a Samaritan village that didn't welcome Christ in His retinue, they seemed to live up to their name. Probably not the sort of fellows you'd want on your mission trip. Yet Jesus chose them. Andrew, also a fisherman. Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew, the tax collector. A man who would have been reviled by the Jewish people. As we noted before, he was scum of the earth extraordinaire. Couldn't get any lower than a tax collector. Then you had Thomas, the pessimist, the doubter. James and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot probably a revolutionary who worked against the Romans. And last of all, Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Christ. Now, none of these men were from high positions in society. None of them had a background in wealth and prosperity. Some of them had major character flaws. And in this motley band, there were men who were complete opposites. If we were putting a a group together, a team, we might never dream of putting an impulsive optimist like Peter together with a reluctant pessimist like Thomas. seems to be a recipe for conflict. (laughs) If you're talking about conflict, putting together a, a former tax collector like Matthew together with a revolutionary like Simon, that's insane. One was working for the Romans. The other was working against the Romans. They were complete opposites. Yet Christ chose them and He put them together. And then to make matters even more complicated, over that last one, Judas Iscariot. As all-knowing God, Jesus knew what Judas would do. He knew that Judas would be the catalyst for his trial and his death on the cross. He knew that this would literally mean suicide for Judas personally. But yet, surprisingly, he chooses him. And in that particular choice, we see Christ's consciousness of what he had come to do. He would not come to destroy the Romans but to destroy Satan, to wage war on him and on sin and death. He knew very well that the path to the cross led through the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. 
all these men, with all their flaws and weaknesses, even their sinful hearts, were chosen by Christ to be His war council, the, the twelve who would wage war on His behalf. They were appointed to represent the true King of Israel, to witness Him to Him, to proclaim Him, to wage war against the powers and principalities on His behalf. This is a position of enormous responsibility, and yet it was given to men who in their day might have been very well regarded as losers. What we see here again is a general principle of the way God works in this world. It doesn't work according to human wisdom. He turns man's wisdom upside down and he does things his way. And where this is seen most powerfully is the cross. A naked, beaten man. Thirsty, hungry, bleeding, and suffering to death. How low can you sink? But yet the cross is our salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul works this out when he speaks about the message of the cross as foolishness to those who are perishing. And then this gets further developed among the people of God. Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And that is so true. Not only for the apostles and for their ministry, but for all of us, for all the people of God through all times and ages and places. Now, one of the most powerful witnesses I have ever seen was from a a man who was mentally challenged. When he was a child, very sad story, he'd been kicked in the head until he was unconscious. And he suffered permanent brain damage as a result of that abuse. He had had a rough life, and it's all kinds of addictions, But God eventually brought him to faith in Christ. How this all happened? Well, it it was an amazing answer to prayer. And this man was used by God to bring the gospel to many. I don't know how many or even if any believed in Christ through his witness. But he put many of us to shame with his simple his simple eagerness and his passion for the gospel and for the word of God. As he'd seen its, its power in his own life. He was weak and sinful. But yet God used him. That's God's way of working in the world, loved ones. This is the way that God will work through us too. No matter where we are in life. Young or old, rich or poor, And He may work through the high and mighty, through those who are of a high position in society. After all, He is the sovereign God and He can work through whomever He wants, however He wants. 
But more often, He surprises us and He does the unexpected. Take the church. The church is a... The world looks at the church and sees something filled with all kinds of different people. And the world wonders, how how on earth did all these different people get together? How can they get along? How can they live together? Hopefully we are getting along and living together. But they will ask that question. God sees the church. And He sees His own creation designed for the good of His people, designed in wisdom. He sees the progress of His work. Warfare. And ultimately, He sees a church as a a body which exists for Him and for His glory. As we look back now and we survey this passage as a whole, we see that Christ's choice was in the last place subversive. In other words, it undermined those who thought they were the authorities in Israel, particularly the religious authorities. Now, Christ was not rebelling against them. He's an authority. And the one who is himself in authority can't rebel against those who are under him. But his actions would have been regarded as provocative, as subversive by the Jewish leaders. And so they were. Nobody who made the claims that Jesus did could go and appoint 12 apostles and not be sending a message to Jerusalem. He was saying that the the true people of Israel are no longer gathered around the 12 tribes, but now around these 12 men. A time was soon coming when the people of Israel would no longer be oriented towards Mount Zion and the priests who worked there and the sacrifices that were offered there. What was happening on this mountain near Capernaum was a regrouping and a reconstitution of Israel. And as we've seen before in other passages, there had already been conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. The end of uh, verse 6, or the, uh, in chapter 3, and the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, with this action, the conflict or the warfare, it gets taken to the next step. It escalates. The Lord Jesus was upping the ante in His clash with the powers that be. They were being formally renounced by His appointment of twelve apostles. Knocked down a few notches. All their hard feelings and all their animosity would gel into a formal plan to kill him. Get rid of him. And so what we have portrayed here is another step toward the cross. The cross, which is God's devastating attack on human sin. The cross where Christ Himself was oppressed and attacked so that we would have peace with God. The cross, which would be His and our victory over sin, death, and Satan. 
While he was appointing the twelve, get this, this is so beautiful. While he was appointing the twelve and subverting the Jewish leaders, his eyes were set on Golgotha and his loving heart was fixed on your salvation. Doesn't that amaze you? What a Savior. With everything that that happens in our text, the divine warrior makes it clear that it was war. And from the, the rest of the New Testament, we know that this war continues today. And in this war, don't be mistaken, there is no middle ground. You're either for Christ or against Him. You're either with Him or not with Him. And for all those who are with the divine warrior, who place their faith in Him alone, victory is assured. And loved ones, what a victory it will be. Let's pray. Almighty Father of our Lord Jesus, how deeply grateful we are for the peace which comes through the cross of Christ. What a Savior we have. We praise You. We thank You for Your sovereign choice of us. Thank You for choosing us before the foundation of the world to be Your children and heirs with Jesus. We thank You for His presence in our lives and we look forward to fully having His presence in the age to come. We praise You for Your wisdom and we admire the way You often surprise us and You do things in in an unexpected way. Truly, we have to say that there is absolutely no one like You. We thank You for turning the world upside down through our Savior in in the time of our text. And we pray that You do the same in our day. We pray that You would use us as Your humble servants with all our weaknesses, with all our failings, even with our sinful hearts to advance the cause of Your kingdom in this world. We pray that You would be pleased to use Your church here to fight the good fight and to make Your name glorious. Please hear us as we pray in Christ our King. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.